You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. The philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard once asked this question. He said, would it have been easier to follow Jesus if you, if, if you were in the first century, I mean, not just anywhere in the first century, but like in Palestine in the first century, being more specific, you, were, you lived in Capernaum or, or, or Nazareth or Jerusalem. And his point was, if you lived there, it, there and then, you'd be able to like see the guy. You wouldn't have to hear about him you could hear about him and then go hear him. You wouldn't have to read stories about him in ancient texts written in languages that we don't we struggle to understand from 2000 years ago, we'd be we'd be right there. We wouldn't have to wonder about these stories of mighty acts that he had done, You're like you could witness them. If you had a friend who was crippled, you could, you know, take him to Jesus. So he asked this question, you know, would it have been easier? And I find that interesting sometimes because I do know people, people I respect and love and appreciate, who sometimes struggle with belief. And I think, would it have been easier? Now, philosophers and theologians will debate this question, but I think it's some, there's something more important for us to do than debate this. And that's actually hear what Jesus himself said about this question. So in John chapter 16, when we come to verse 5, we find these words. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you. You cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak whatever he hears and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Notice that Jesus says that this is for your good. 
they are filled with grief. They're filled with sorrow. They're like, we've finally come around to actually paying more attention to you. We finally come to believe in you. Some of his followers had actually committed themselves to him and they had left behind their livelihoods and what they had put their hopes in before. They had left all that. Now they were coming with him. And just as they're coming with him, now he says, well, I'm going to leave you. It's not a big mystery that they're filled with sorrow. It's not that hard to figure out why they're filled with grief. But he says it's not a reason for grief. It's not a time to mourn. It's for your good, and this is a time of joy. What is going on here? How could it be better for them? How could it be better for us? Let's look at this and ask ourselves these questions. First, who is he talking about? He refers here to the one who he will send. He refers to as the advocate or the comforter or the paraclete. He's already talked about him in the, in the last chapter, so they should have some indication of who he is. And here's what we can say, is that this is the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit who is a person. Now, sometimes there's confusion about this. And sometimes it's sort of understandable why there is confusion. Sometimes we see people trying to wield the Spirit like a force field or throwing it or using it as if it's some kind of thing at their disposal that they can use against someone else. Sometimes we think of, you know, we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as an inferior thing, as a kind of an it, a force, a field, an instrument, a thing we can use. And to be sure, some of the ways the Bible talks about the Spirit sound a bit less than personal. He's referred to as wind, fire, etc. But the overall picture of the Holy Spirit that unfolds across the Bible is that the Holy Spirit is fully personal. The Spirit is lied to, the Spirit is greed, the Spirit is angered, the Spirit helps, the Spirit comforts, the Spirit convicts. The Spirit does things a person does. And perhaps most importantly, Jesus right here uses distinctly personal language with respect to the Spirit. I, he says, will send him to you. He will come. He will judge the world. He will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. So first when we see, who, when we ask who is this he's talking about, we see that the Holy Spirit is a person. And we see that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. Scripture teaches, the great Christian tradition has recognized and affirmed nothing less than the full and complete divinity of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Spirit is not sort of divine. The Spirit isn't divine-ish. The Spirit isn't some lesser deity, isn't some second-grade or second-rate deity. No, the Spirit is fully divine, completely divine, of one being with the Father and the Son, equal to the Father and the Son. So when Jesus tells us 
that he's sending another one. And when he tells us this is for our good, he's telling us that he's sending one equal to himself, fully divine, completely personal. Now, it's one thing to believe this. It's one thing to say we believe it, to affirm it in our creed as we just did. Sometimes it's another thing to really believe it. Deep in our bones, to the core of our existence. It's one thing to formally affirm the, the Christian Orthodox view when we're asked about it. But it's another thing to take this into ourselves. What are we saying? What are we saying by our actions? What are we saying by our response to temptation? What are we assuming? That the Holy Spirit isn't as real? That the Holy Spirit isn't really personal? That the Holy Spirit isn't really divine? Doesn't have the power to help? Doesn't have the, the desire to help us? That the coming of the Holy Spirit doesn't really matter? That somehow it would be easier if we had Jesus than the Spirit, despite the words of our Lord himself. Now, brothers and sisters, reflect on this. The Holy Spirit, the same Spirit, this is fully divine and fully personal and completely real as the Son, has been promised to us, and the promise has been fulfilled at Pentecost. That's why Jesus says, this is for your good. Second question, what will this spirit do? And Jesus tells us directly that he will convict the world of sin. That is, the spirit will expose the true situation. The spirit will bring out of darkness and into light. The world, as we know, is full of confusion widespread denial of the very idea of sin, rampant confusion about what really is wrong with us. In, I, in our day, just as in Isaiah's day, there are so many who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We see this all too easily at the social and political levels. There's corruption, there's injustice, there's wickedness throughout our world. And I'm afraid we see it at the personal level where the corruption and the injustice and the wickedness isn't just out there. It's in here. So much of it seems hidden. So much of it, when it is exposed, goes unpunished. So much of it is shrugged off with arrogance or just callousness. I was in um, refugee camps in northern Uganda a couple weeks ago with people who had fled from Sudan. There are stories of horror and anguish. The brutality that they had suffered was heart-wrenching. And what was equally infuriating was that the people who had done it seemed to face no consequences. It just looks like evil wins. Sometimes in our world, it looks like evil wins. Sometimes in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our own personal lives, it looks like evil wins. 
So much of it seems hidden. So much of it gets covered up. So much of it just goes along. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to convict. The promise of Jesus is that the Holy Spirit will bring this into light, that he will convince and convict of sin. And as so many things are called evil in our world, he also tells us what this sin ultimately consists of. It's a rejection of Jesus. The Spirit will convict the world about sin and will convict the world of righteousness. Jesus says because he is going to the Father, the Spirit will convict. That is, being convicted of the world, having convicted the world of its sin, having convicted the world of its fake righteousness, the Spirit also convicts the world of genuine righteousness. And here he points us to Christ. The resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ demonstrates that he is the righteous one. Our hope is in him and his righteousness. For John, I think, no less than Paul and the other authors of the New Testament, our hope is in him, in his blood and righteousness. The Spirit has come to convict the world of sin, but the Spirit then doesn't throw us back upon ourselves, doesn't just expose it and say, now you fix it. No, he doesn't make us attempt to rescue ourselves, to make ourselves righteous. No, no, no. Jesus says the Spirit will come to convict the world of what's wrong, but also to point us to the one who is righteous, to point us to the one who gives us hope, to convince the world of the one true hope for righteousness and justice and holiness, our Lord Jesus Christ. He says the Holy Spirit will come to convict the world about sin, the Holy Spirit will come to convict the world of true righteousness. And he says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of judgment. And he says here that this is because the ruler of this world now stands condemned. The depth and intensity of the irony here should grip us. Jesus himself in John's gospel is on his way to a trial. Jesus himself will be tried, convicted, and condemned. Jesus himself is the one who will die powerless. And Jesus says, the ruler of this world already stands condemned. The twisted and warped values of this world may seem victorious, the injustice and unrighteousness seem sometimes to be invincible. But here Jesus refers to this great reversal. The one who appears triumphant now stands condemned, and the one who appears powerless will bring victory. Prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. One little word will fail him. Who is, why does Jesus say this? He actually says it's going to be better for him to go. Better for him to go because he will send another 
Who is this one he sends? The one who is fully personal, fully divine, fully given for us. What will this one do? He will convict the world of its sin and its false righteousness. He will point us to the righteous one and he will take us to him. And how will this happen? We must not miss the fact that according to Jesus, the Holy Spirit does this through the lives and testimonies of Jesus' own followers. Sometimes I hear little cliches that go sort of like this, that Christians shouldn't make moral judgments. That's not our business. That's just God's. And, and I'll just be blunt. I think that's a big pile of nonsense. It may be well-intentioned nonsense. It might be humble nonsense. It might be pious nonsense. But it's nonsense. It's also an abdication of our responsibility as followers of Jesus. As followers of Jesus who are filled by Jesus' Spirit, who are empowered by this Holy Spirit, we are to be passionate about justice and righteousness and holiness. God's people, that is, when faithful, have always been able and willing to call evil, evil, and good, good. Whether we see it in slavery and genocide around the world, or whether we see it in the mirror as hypocrisy and arrogance. Notice here that Jesus is promised to the believers, to the followers of Jesus, for the sake of the world. The Holy Spirit works in the world through the followers of Jesus. But at the same time, we must remember that when the Holy Spirit works through the world through the followers of Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit who's at work. And so when we point people to the only hope of salvation, when we point people to the one who is righteous and who offers us true righteousness, when we preach Christ and him crucified, we are not doing so alone. When we stand up for the defenseless, we are not doing so alone. When we're tempted to despair at the scale of evil in the world that seems so widespread and so entrenched, we do not face this temptation alone. When we see the, neglect, the, the results of neglect and abuse, when we see the, the bruised face of a 12-year-old who's been, who's been beaten by his father, and we feel powerless to make a difference, we do not do this alone. Jesus says, it's going to be better for you. Initially, my first response is probably like the disciples. What in the world? What are you talking about, Jesus? But Jesus says, it's going to be better for you because I'm going to send him to you. And he says, when I commission you, when I put you to the work of the, God's work in the world, 
I'm not calling you to go be a hero on your own. I'm not asking you to do the impossible. He says, I am sending you by the one filled by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes in our own Christian lives, in our own personal walk with the Lord, I think sometimes it's easy for us to bounce between this is just too much and too hard or I'm really pretty great. A few years ago, we were, um, as a family, we were visiting my, my parents in western Montana and we decided to do a, a hike. Our kids were young at the time and so we tried to pick something that would be safe and not too far but still fun and so we we decided to do, we wouldn't do one I loved called Trapper Peak. We decided, we decided we'd do St. Mary's Peak. So we did this hike up St. Mary's, and it's about, I think, eight or nine miles, and, but it's not unsafe, but it's beautiful. And the, we knew that the older boys would be fine. They could do it. I was a little concerned about my youngest, Isaac. He was three at the time, and he was strong, but not always super mentally tough. And so I took him along, and I had a pack that he could ride in. And so we started down the trail, and I thought, he'll at least make it the first mile or two, and then if I need to carry him for a while, I can. I'm serious. We were like 300 yards down that trail. And he's like, oh, Dad, my eggs are hurting me. I'm like, oh, great, already. So I tried to encourage him on a little bit further. Oh, can you carry me? I can't do this. So I put him in the pack. And we go a little ways further down the trail. And he's like, this pack is hurting my legs. Can, I, can you let me walk? So I take him back out of the pack. And he walks a little bit further, like a quarter mile down the trail. He's like, I can't go any further. I'm hurting. I can't do this. So I put him back in the pack. We repeat this cycle over and over and over again. And by the time we were up near Treeline, about ready to break out into the, you know, the high country, most, I'm uh, just going to be honest, I think all the fun had gone out of that trip for me. I think we were doing it because I was stubborn at that point. Like, we are going to summit. He whined and complained. He didn't like being in the pack. He didn't, really didn't like walking. We finally ended the hike with him above the pack just sitting on my shoulders. I don't think either one of us enjoyed that at all. Finally, we reached the summit. And when we finally reached the summit, we could look over into the next range. What normally would have been this sort of moment of triumph and this sort of moment of elation was for me just like, oh. And he said, let me down, let me down. So I set him down. He immediately finds a burst of energy and he runs to a rock cairn that was built at the very highest point of the top of the peak. He runs to that, clambers up to the top of the rock cairn, and flexes on us all. <laughs> and he says, I did it! <laughs> and I was like, no, you didn't do anything here. <laughs> But sometimes I fear that in our Christian lives, 
we roll along a lot like three-year-old Isaac. We vacillate between, I can't do it. This is too hard. Or, look at me. This is where my biceps would be if I had some. I did it. And the truth is that Jesus tells us, walking with the Lord is a life that is filled and empowered by God's Holy Spirit. And when he calls us to face the forces of evil in the world, he does not send us on a suicide mission on our own. He fills us with the one who takes us through it. He leads us by the one who is a sure guide. He empowers us by the one who has all power. And when we face the temptation to think, oh, it may be good that God calls us to a life of righteousness and holiness, but I can't do it. That's true. But that's not the whole truth. Instead, Jesus says, it's better for you that I go. Because when I go, he will come. That's true when we look in the mirror. And that's true when we look into our world. I mentioned a moment ago that um, a couple of weeks ago I was in these refugee camps in northern Uganda. Heart-wrenching. Heart-wrenching accounts of people who have lost so much and suffered so much and in a context where it seems like there's no recourse. It just seems like evil wins. Facing that can be overwhelming. It seems like. It, se it just does. That evil wins. And it's in those contexts as well. That the words of Jesus are such good news. I will send him to you and he will convict the world of sin and he will convict the world of righteousness and he will lead you to the righteous one. Matt said years and years, for years and years, he's, he's you know, we, we were supposed to meet and didn't. I was like, man, that makes me sound old. And then I realized only because I am. Well, many, many years ago, again, more years ago than I like to think, I was a college student. And one night after uh, a hard-fought, tough-loss basketball game, some of my friends and I were sitting around just in the, the porch of a dormitory, sort of licking our wounds and talking together. And then we looked over in a parking lot adjacent to our, to our dormitory, and we saw a group of guys, and we recognized them sort of just enough to know they weren't from our campus. And something kind of went through my mind about the, there had been some, some people causing trouble around the area. And then I noticed that one of them had a bicycle. He was riding an old bike, and I looked and I thought, that looks like my friend Jean-Marc's bike. And then right then, the chain came off. And then I knew that was Jean-Marc's bike. 
And then this guy picks the bike up and he holds it over his head and he throws it to the ground. He picks it up again and he throws it to the ground. He's just trying to break the bike. Now, Jean-Marc was a friend of mine who had come from Haiti with the clothes on his back and one little bag. Someone had given him this old bike and it just seemed wrong to me that he was doing that to it. So without, obviously, without thinking things through, I just decided I'm going to go get the bike. And so I just jumped down and started walking directly toward this group of guys. And they started looking at me and yelling at me, saying really bad things about me and my mom for some reason, and making all sorts of threats. And I remember thinking, I don't want a problem. I'm not going to cause any problem, but I'm going to go get this bike. And as I got closer and closer, their threats and noise got louder and louder. But I also noticed they were backing up. And at some point, I, I'm not proud of this, but I, I do remember this feeling sort of surge through me. They're not as dumb as they look. They don't want none of this. <laughs> because they were threatening me as they were backing away. So they backed away from the bike just as I arrived at the bike. And so I reached down and picked up the bike. And then I realized, oh no, I did not think this through very well at all. Now what am I supposed to do? The thought of trying to backpedal across a parking lot seemed really awkward. And the thought of turning and my back to them and walking away seemed a little bit risky. So I hesitated. And then I remember thinking, well, I'm in it now. So I picked the bike up and turned on the heel and started to walk away. And as soon as I turned, I realized they weren't backing up because of me. One step behind me was my friend, the appropriately named Greg Burley, all six foot nine and 265 pounds of them. They weren't backing up because of me. They were backing up because of who I was with. Jesus says, it's better for you that I go. Better for you and better for the world to which I send you. Better for you and better for those to whom you will love. What amazing good news from our Lord. He will convict the world of sin. He will show the world the righteous one. And he will do it in and through his people. Thanks be to God. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.